Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current events in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. I am Jeremy Goldcorn, hosting solo today, as Kaiser is regrettably otherwise engaged, which leaves me with the great joy of having two guests who both happen to be old friends talking about the topic of translation. We're very happy to have Linda Javen uh, join us. Linda is an Australian. Uh, an old China, a young China hand who's been in, in and out of China for many, many years.、Um, she is the author of eight books, numerous translations,、uh, especially film translations.、Um, her first book, actually not among the eight, but was、uh, the, she was a co-translator, was called "New Ghosts, Old Dreams: Chinese Rebel Voices," which was、uh, a collaboration with Jeremy Barney, who has also been a guest on the show. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. Great to be here. And our second guest is a Seneca almost regular, Alice Liu, who is the managing editor of Pathlight Magazine, a,、uh, a magazine of translations of、uh, Chinese literature. She's also just finishing off, I believe,、um, uh, a translation of essays of Han Han, which will be published next year. And、uh, in the interests of full disclosure, I should say that her co-translator and also husband. Uh, her co-translator on that project is Joel Martinson, who happens to be my colleague at Danway. So it's all rather incestuous.、Um, Alice is also one of the comrades of Paper Republic, which is a, a website about、mm, translation from Chinese literature, essentially. So, Welcome, Alice. Thanks, Jeremy. The cat's out of the bag. I'm married, people. You're married. She's married. Guys, you know, start crying. One of the literary <laughs> translators. Sorry.、Uh, yeah, she's off the market. Sorry. So translation,、um, translation is a really huge topic in China because so much of、uh, misunderstandings about China and understandings come from things that are translated because foreigners generally don't read or speak Chinese,、um, and、uh, it's a subject that we could probably spend twenty podcasts on. Our two guests, I may say, are perhaps inclined more towards literary. Cinematic translation, rather than any kind of technical translation, but we'll endeavour to cover translation in all its forms tonight. So let's start with Linda because you are soon to publish. I believe also you've just finished. Maybe <laughs> that's right. Just draft. <laughs> I've seen the, the rough draft of、uh, an essay which will be published in Australia's quarterly essay magazine, which is,、uh, if you're not Australian, I would say the most respected.、Uh, Quarterly essay. <laughs> <laughs> It's a long form essay. I've、the、written about twenty thousand words on the subject of translation. Very respectable. Ask me anything. Twenty <laughs> thousand words on the subject. So let's start with your essay. You know, what's it about? <laughs> well, what's it about then? The, the the basic thing is is looking at the idea of translation itself and、um, understanding first of all that what we and what we what we are talking about when we talk about translation,、uh, translation in English comes from Latin, which. Uh, talk, which means、um, taking something from one realm or place to another. So you talk about translating a saint's relics from one cathedral to the next, for example.、Um, whereas other languages, for example, Hindi,、uh, the word for translation is just retelling. And then you have words in Japanese that、uh, the Japanese have a fantastic vocabulary for liter- 
literary translation, which is very, very specific um, because they do a lot of it. So they have words for a translation that's an improvement on the original <laughs> and a translation of a translation and so on. So that's, that's one thing is just to establish what we're talking about. When we say translation in English, we're not necessarily talking about the same thing that everybody is talking about around the world. And the, so we can't even translate translation. No, is, is not really. Yes, exactly. Or we have to translate it with a lot of footnotes. Um, and the second thing is to realize that uh, the that world civilization has been built to a huge extent on translation in a way that I think we can that's pretty invisible to us um, if we don't think about it, and we should think about it a lot more. I mean, the, from you know, translations from the Greeks that influenced, uh, you know, an Italian novelist who then inspired Shakespeare, who then inspired an Australian film director, who then inspired, uh, you know, a Singaporean uh, theatre director, and so on. These these loops that translation um, uh the, the translation loops the world and it ties it together. But there's also an incredible imbalance, uh, an imbalance of trade, um, to use one of the, um, to use a, a phrase that's um, uh, of a theorist of translation, Lawrence Venuti, in that the, the number of translated works into English, and I mean, Alice's work is one of the things that's like a corrective to this. Um, and of course, uh, your work as well, Danway, all of the things that people do when they're translating Chinese literature and other literatures, is that this terrible imbalance of trade exists that the English-speaking readership um, really does not pub does not have a lot of exposure to literature and translation. Whereas, for example, in China or in Japan, many or Norway. Or Norway, many countries around the world, they translate lots and lots and lots of stuff. They are much more aware of other cultures than the Anglophone world is um, aware of, say, what's going on in Chinese literature or what's going on in Japanese or Norwegian literature. Although I think we're pretty pretty up with the with the uh, Swedish uh, detective. Um, we we have a lot of Swedish detective fiction <laughs> in English. That's true. But so let's. I mean, can we consider the the numbers a little bit? I mean, maybe Alice can can answer this. How much Chinese literature does get translated into English? Well, there's a contentious uh, figure um, in the translation world, which is usually uh, cited as being three percent of all. Uh, published, materi- published books and materials in, say, the U.S. is our translations. So if you look at Chinese literature, it would be a minor fraction of 3%. So I think in 2012, the figure in the U.S., major publishing houses, was 12 uh, novels, books in translation for a whole year. And, you know, the big joke is there are a gazillion Chinese writers in China writing novels, writing nonfiction books, writing what have you, and poetry collections, all of this, and none of it is getting out there. And if I can be like my usual asshole self, can I ask the question, (laughs) like, are these works not getting translated because they're just crap? Or is it because the Anglophone world is just too narrow-minded and, you know, obsessed with its own Anglophone stuff? I think it would be a little bit of both. Uh, But it's also, when we say that, um, there's also this problem of some, some really, really good Chinese fiction just doesn't translate well. Well, some really good fiction in all languages, when it's based, when the when the greatness of it is based in the language itself, in wordplay and so on, 
you, know, you look at the early Wang Shuo, nobody has ever done those well. Yeah, but I think that might be a myth. I would, really? I would step in and say everything that you think can't be translated is partially steeped in truth, but also partially the, the mythological status of it is so high that people won't try it. But they so have. The Wang, so the Wang Shuo one, mm. uh, you know, playing for thrills, mm. that was Howard Goldblatt translated um, in the last century. You know, that was not, I mean, it was an okay novel, but you don't get the sense of the original. And obviously, Wang Shuo is notoriously hard to translate. Right, so the Beijing Hua. For our readers who may not be uh, familiar with Chinese literature, can you give us a potted biography of Wang Shuo? Linda, maybe. Well, well Wang Shuo uh, was really the first independent novelist to come up in the 80s. Um, the person who came out, he did not come up through the state system. Uh, and his novels were wildly popular. They captured the colloquial humor uh, and. A very Beijing sense of humor. Very right? Beijing sense of humor. Mm. They, they talked about things that um, all the, the normal state published novels or state um, uh, state writers were not writing about. They talked about uh, uh, people going and blackmailing um, blackmailing people for you know yeah, over like, sex and right. and 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 uh, trying to pick up girls on the street and 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 like it was the, right. the operators. If that anyone sort of seen thing, you was... know Jiang Wen's In the Heat of the Sun? Uh, yes, exactly. Oh. Which I translated. Wait, which then the translated <laughs> the subtitles off. Or if you've seen any um, uh, Feng Xiaogang film, yeah, uh, many of those are collaborations with Wang Shuo, and Feng Xiaogang actually took over the style yeah. in film. So it is. I mean, I would argue it is translatable. Well, yes, some of it is. Um, yeah. But what I'm what what I, I suppose my point was that sometimes some of the things either because of the language or because of that, the Chinese obsession with um, China's exceptionalism, some things just don't become, it's not necessarily that it's crap, as you said, it's not one or the other, but there is this problem where some Chinese uh, novels or writers can be so obsessed with the problems of China. It's navel-gazing. Yeah, and nobody yeah. else cares. Right. Right. Really. Navel-gazing is exactly the right word. Wang Shuo is pretty much a navel-gazing. So what is Han Han. Sun, then? Let's, let's take somebody who everybody, the conventional wisdom is China's greatest blah, blah, well, blah, in, greatest writer of the 20th century, right. Lu Sun. But I mean, uh, well, something that often strikes me about Lu Sun is that if you don't care about China, I don't know if you'd really care about Lu Sun's work. Yes. Right. That's a really interesting point because right. I don't think Lucian has much profile outside of the China, you know, the, the, the world that's interested in China, except as somebody they might have heard of as China's greatest 20th century writer or something. Right. How would you respond to that in terms of you're, you're working on a translation of Han Han essays, Alice? I mean, Han Han sometimes, I mean, people, yeah. he does inspire comparisons to Lucian because he's a caustic and also Wang Shuo. Critic, and also Wang Shuo. Yeah. I find that, I mean, I'm interested in reading Han Han's story, uh, Han Han's blog posts and his essays, not because of an appeal to my basic humanity. I'm, I'm interested in it because he's writing about China and very specifically Chinese things. I mean, how are you going to portray these concerns of Han Han's in a way that might engage an audience that may not care about China. Right. Um, a readership, sorry, not an audience. Yeah, re readership. But I mean, I so the book that I'm doing is the second book that Simon Schuster, USA, you know, have picked up. The first book was translated by Alan Barr, who also did China in 10 Words by Yu Hua, and he's very, very good. I think he's at Pomona College in the US. So the fact that it's being picked up a second time and now co-translated by myself and Joel and picked by myself and Joel shows that there actually is an interest in the US for this kind of writing, which is all kind of navel gazing, you know, 
I translated an essay about going to Thailand and feeling Chinese and how to, you know, and making fun of all the patriots and people who go to another country and say, hey, I'm Chinese, you better treat me well. And Han Han's making fun of that, but he's also saying Chinese people take themselves way too seriously when they go to countries that they think are third world or developing. And that kind of essay, I think, I mean, US audiences, you may need a little bit of knowledge about the China national character, but to read how Chinese people think about themselves in comparison to other nations, I think it's pretty fascinating. You know, Han Han's also got the social conscience thing going on, much like, I guess, Lu Xun. He's got the acerbic wit going on, like Wang Shuo, you know, so he's self-deprecating, but he's also got a social conscience that he then goes, you know, he hammers it on about how, you know, we're, we, he's, he's newly, he's a new father, I guess. So he hates the fact that, you know, child prostitution in China is basically a crime. But why is it a crime if a you know, a three-year-old gets raped. That's not a crime. You can't say to someone, oh, this is a, a case of child prostitution. It's obviously just rape, right? So he's very, he's got all, all of his bees in his bonnets and he wants to go around telling people he thinks. And I think those are a fascinating look into how Chinese people feel about themselves. If I can change the tack slightly uh, and ask you, Linda, I, I, you know, had the privilege of reading a, an early draft of your essay and I'm going to quote a little bit from it, but it might not be the, I mean, I know that That's it okay. hasn't been edited, so it might not be the final form. But um, Ezra Pound, this is Linda's uh, words from her draft. Um, Ezra Pound once declared that the translation of a poem must either be the expression of the translator, virtually a new poem, or like a photograph, as exact as possible, of one side of the statue. Um, I mean, those are two... Uh, I mean, that's a very poetic description of translation. And those are two attitudes to translation. Where do you two fall on that? I mean, how, you know, how much is a translation a new thing unto itself? And how, how faithful should it be to at least one part, some side of the original? If this doesn't sound too uh, airy fairy zen, <laughs> I think that one of the really interesting scared already. <laughs> I think one of the really interesting things about the process of translation, um, one of the things that attracts uh, me as a writer to it is that it does put you in a place where you have um, two thoughts at the same time that actually contradict each other. Um, you can you you are looking at capturing that one side of the statue and you're looking at making a complete recreation. It's a little bit like, uh, was it in the Tang Dynasty, that famous, um, the woman who could sing out of her nose and her throat at the same time? Do you remember that? Um, I can't remember her name, but Brendan O'Kane isn't here, so Brendan no O'Kane no would know. get that instantly. No, but um, the, I think it's it is it is a trick of holding those two concepts in your head and then producing something that is nigh it's it's neither one nor the other, but it's a little bit of both. You're always recreating. You can't get away from that with translation. You are not putting the original down. There's no one-to-one -one transposition of meaning or words. If you do a one-to-one -one transposition, then it's pretty unreadable and it's often not understandable. And uh, Lu Xun, I mean, talking about Lu Xun, to get back to him, uh, he was doing some translations of Soviet literary criticism back um, back in the first part of the 20th century. And uh, he got into this big fight with a literary critic at the time who was saying, it's completely unreadable. There's no appeal in this. Who's going to read this? You're just, you're just taking it and you're kind of, you're doing this one-to-one 
word to word into Chinese uh, translation. It's and Lucian said, "Well, that's right. I I don't want it to be appealing. I don't want to bring people in through a kind of a seductive thing. I want people to understand. I'm breaking the Chinese language open. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was." It's what that sounds right, but like fun. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what. And are you yeah. saying that you think that's a nobler cause? Well, no, I'm not saying that's a nobler cause. I would never do that because mm. I would never make a translation um, uh, uh, ugly just to try to get the idea of what it sounded like in the original because it doesn't sound like that in right. the original. That is the that is the problem. It doesn't sound strange in the original. It sounds natural in the original. Right. It sounds like Soviet literary criticism by you know that a Soviet person's reading. Right. So the problem is is that on the one hand. You are trying to bring the strange into the familiar. Um, on the other hand, you're also recreating it so that it's it retains the freshness of the strange. It retains the shock. It retains whatever it has that's its essence, and yet um, feels like something that was written in, in our case, English. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that definitely balance the two. Um, right, but mm, and, I, and it's a strange balance because it's actually it a contradiction. I that sort you're, of go around working. though, and I play mm. devil's advocate. And so, I sorry, can, can just can we restate what 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 is the what is the conflict? The conf uh, between myself and Linda? No, no, no. Between these two, <laughs> well, translators have to fight. Oh dear! Oh, oh no! A translators fight. It's the oh, job no. description. Shut, shut down the, the conflict. The okay, the conflict is this: um, you taking. Uh, a photograph of one side of the statue, okay, to use Ezra Pound's metaphor. That means that when you're translating, because words and phrases and sentences and meanings are incredibly rich, any work of literature in any language um, will will set off a lot of different associations in people's minds as they're reading it. So, uh, you know, if you're reading something, if I'm reading an Australian novel and it uses certain words, it will definitely evoke certain aspects of the country, certain aspects of the culture. Perhaps it will have a reference to something that's previously been written in Australia. And all of that's coded in the language. Now, if I'm going to translate it, I have to uh, to get it into another language, I can't capture all that. You're not going to be able to convey that to the other person. You're going to just get one side of the statue. You have to pick what is the most important or essential aspect of what is being said. Is it is it a communication of um, an emotion? Is it a communication of an historical background or something that's a social right. context? And then on the other hand, you're recreating. Right. You know, th- so these are the two things. And when you recreate, how much are you, you want to create something that's whole and rich and full of association, but you're also doing this from one side of the statue. Right. So what, I mean, we're, now that you've described it again, I would say that, you know, I was previously going to say something that's more radical, but what you're saying is basically, right, you have an idiom in Chinese and no one's going to get it because of the cultural context in English. So you have to find the exact same idiom in English. No, no, no. So, for example, there is a Chinese saying that means uh, like bamboo shoots springing up after a spring rain. And that means, and that's so obvious, that is really clear in English. It conveys the beauty of it. We can get that association. That's not a problem. But if you talk about Sai Wang Shima, um, old man Sai loses his horse, um, if you translate that into English, old man Sai loses his horse, it means nothing. And what does it mean? It means... If you uh, translate it properly. Well... 
it means um, you know you you can't really tell whether something that seems to be bad luck is going to turn out to be good luck or bad luck in the end. Uh, that's a very long-winded translation. Right. I certainly wouldn't. I think use I that, would even argue that I wouldn't translate uh, spring. Was it uh, sh- uh, bamboo, bamboo shoots, shoots after springing spring up after rain. spring rain? Really? What would you do? Because I think that the original in Chinese might sound quite natural. But if I translate it as bamboo shoots after spring rain, I'm obviously making the text a lot more, you know, esoteric in a way because you have to think about the image. But then you also have these literary allusions to, you know, old Chinese or even. I don't know, to Shakespeare, so well, you, know, you know, it's sort of alienizing, is othering this kind of language, which I would say, if there's an English equivalent, an idiom that talks about new life coming out of the ground of new soil, and English people or American English, whatever, uh, Anglophone readers will then see, okay, that's something I understand, but also is poetic. Oh, but see, I, I would, would use that. I would argue that that is so instantly understandable, and it preserves... in English too. Yeah, wouldn't you think so? Like bamboo shoots springing up after but, spring rain. Right. Spring rain, you. Just think oh yeah you get the image you get the notion of flourishing you don't really need to yes, know but about bam- bamboo. bamboos are incredibly common in china and mm, not but at you're all talking about in translating a chinese chinese text into english yeah and so you can so, you can preserve that i mean it's not like the it's not like making it i don't think that's an orientalizing or an no i'm not saying it is i'm just saying i've had so many occasions when i look at an, in the, an idiom in chinese or chengyu and i think I can definitely translate this uh, into a very nice image for the foreign reader, but because there are certain words in there that make, will make them think of Oriental, or I don't like Oriental, but you know, Asian, East Asian, Chinese, Japanese text, I don't want them to go in that direction. I want them to go in a direction which for them reminds them of, I don't know, Shakespeare or Chaucer. So how about this question? If you have uh, a piece of literature, a piece of text, and it's written in some kind of, dialect or slang, say Beijing slang. Mm-hmm. Some translators will choose to render that in something that they consider equivalent, like say, you know, Beijing Hua might become Cockney. Right. Or might become no, I hate that too. We agree. Like, uh, what, what, what's <laughs> well, wrong with that? That's, it's why very why wrong. do you hate that? Okay, I hate it because it instantly... Um, Cockney, for example, um, has all of these cultural associations um, that are totally inappropriate that bring to mind a certain kind of English culture, a London culture that has no... Yeah, and it it doesn't have... It, there are no equivalents here. So in the in the essay, I actually talk about m- one of the things that struck me from the time I began studying Chinese as the worst possible thing to do with the translation. Yeah. And it was a Howard Goldblatt translation. The one he does it into the self. self oh, my God. Like, it was yeah. from uh, Bai Xianyong's um, <laughs> beautiful Taipei Ren, beautiful collection of short stories. And it's about... The mainlanders who went over to Taiwan mm. um, with with Jiang Kai-shek and then um, little stories that take place within their world. And mm. there's this one story that has these Shanghai Tai Tai and their Anhui maids. And the Anhui maids speak the local, you know, the, a slightly rougher dialect from the Shanghai perspective. Um, they're less educated and so on. And Bai Shenyong manages to convey this beautifully in, in, in the written Chinese. But what um, Goldblatt did in the translation was turn them into uh, antebellum southern, I mean, they, they were just southern plantation slaves, right. essentially. It was right. horrible. Uh, and the problem with this, the problem with Cockney for Beijing or whatever, is that you instantly take the reader into a completely inappropriate cultural reference. Um, it's much better to go 
as neutral as possible. There's no neutral language, but not to assign it a definite, uh, not to assign it a place, place and a class that yeah. doesn't. Mm. Or, a, no a race, right? or a race, right? Or a race. Yes, yeah, exactly. You can't turn them into black people. Yeah, it, exactly. It doesn't, doesn't make any it sense. It doesn't you work on any level. You can't turn Benjamin into black people? N- no. Or, and, or like all the IEs that you have, they're not black. <laughs> you well, know? you can't yeah. turn it into the South. Yeah. No, I yeah. mean, yeah. It, no. Because language has so much embedded culture in it. And that's the, trans- that's the real dilemma and challenge for translation is that it's that one side of the statue thing. It's, right. You know, you but then, only... you know, how do you do that? If you had an Ayi and then you had a Beijingren, how do you differentiate that with, you know, the dialect? Well, what I would do is um, I would think about somebody who was um, more sophisticated and educated and someone who was less educated because there is, is, there is that difference in education. Mm. And so the Ayis would not speak with... Um, they, they would be... They would not speak with sophisticated words. Um, they would be um, speaking quite simply. Um, I'm talking about in this particular uh, novel. Right. Um, and, but I wouldn't assign them anything that was culturally specific. Right. So it's a matter of diction. I think that most translators should actually have a hand in uh, writing and dabbling in creating new voices because I think diction... It's so important, you know, if you can capture the diction of an IE versus the diction of a properly educated, I don't know, Shanghai lady or um, someone who has proper education, especially in a context in China where everyone's around, you know, people from different classes, although we don't call them classes here. So um, we don't. We don't. We We, we call them educated and uneducated, right? 有文化,没文化. Oh. <laughs> uh, it I used mean, to be classes. I mean, because class is so big in Britain, and you know, yes. um, it used think, to be class struggle. Yeah, or class struggle. Well, class. actually, that's another really interesting point, if you don't mind my yeah, interrupting, which is that um, the language changes and evolves so much that um, you know, first of all, translations age, whereas texts don't, which is a very odd thing, but it actually happens. Yeah. But the other thing is that when you're translating, you also have to be aware of of the kind of diction, as you were saying, that um, it represents. So if you're translating a cultural revolution text, you're going to use different strategies um, of expression than if you were translating Bai Xianyong's uh, Taipei people. Um, Which is from where and when? Taipei Ren was, uh, I think it was 60s, 70s Taipei, um, among middle class and working class people um, from the mainland, but living in Taiwan. Uh, whereas, if you're using, if you're translating something that is set in the Cultural Revolution, then you're using a very different language. And we're just talking about classes, and now we talk about, you know, educated, not educated, but um, class language and the discussion of class and what kind of. So, you know, how would you translate a text from the Cultural Revolution? Would you use more? Or you use language that is that that goes with right. that, so like Soviet-inspired slogan. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you have to talk about the the working classes, the revolutionary right. ma- masses, right. um, the, the proletariat, s- the stinking right. intellectuals. You know, right. the stinking ninth category. But isn't that just verbatim translation? Because that was the vocabulary people were using. I mean, what's it's not exactly verbatim. It, it's got to capture that sense of sloganeering of a very stiff um, categorization of people, of the politicization and militarization of language. If you're going to translate something from the Cultural Revolution, you get a sense of the, of the 
politicization of everything, all discourse, you know, um, there's, 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 I mean, obviously, depending on what you're, what you're translating, but when you're translating texts that have the cultural revolution language in it, you've got to find that kind of equivalent. And often characters aren't real characters, they represent something. Yes, well, it, if you have a, a, a text that's written today set in the Cultural Revolution, oh, that's not going to be not, the not case. Quite, but from yeah. that era. Oh, yeah, from yeah. that era. It's but can, can we tricky. focus in on hmm. the question of, of, of sort of how much freedom you have as a translator? I'd like to just quote from Alice, your translator's note to... Uh, Pathlight Speed. Hmm? Pathlight Speed issue. Pathlight Speed issue, the issue on speed, which... I don't think, is, is it about methamphetamine? <laughs> no, it's not, no. no. Oh, you can't score no, no, speed from so me, cool. sorry. Um, anyway, so you're, you're looking, you're talking about your translation of uh, Ren Xiaowen, uh, uh, I am fish. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll just quote from it. Later, when we go inside Amor, who's one of the characters in the book, Amor's room, we see a smelly, bug-infested and disorderly place. Stuffing has come out of a pillow. The pillow is strewn about at the end of the bed, and the Chinese is Chuang Wei, which is graceful and elegant in its two-character way, the end of the bed. The English, down the end of the bed, is so ugly, but there was nothing I could do about that. It has, of course, become collateral damage. My concern for this wordiness falls very much into the dangerous fantasy of rewriting the original piece in your translation. How much is appropriate? At which point are you defying its author and her style? Can I just put on the bed instead of down the end of the bed? Do you really need to add that the rat ran across the top of Amor's foot? Which obviously is something we wouldn't say in English. So uh, let's discuss this question. How, How much is appropriate, Alice, to, to sort of rework the original? I have to say my words have never sounded better. <laughs> coming out of your mouth, but I've tried, I, I, tried, I've I wrote, tried. yeah, I wrote that because, you know, it, it, it bugs me that Chinese writers, contemporary writers, like Ren Xiaowen was born in 1978. Um, she only has two novels, you know, and she, like all her generation, they seem to like to write really detailed, specific things like down the end of the bed and on the top of the foot. You know, there's so much descriptive detail that I don't think you necessarily need to convey in the English for the story to be elegant. So when I try and leave those things out, I usually get asked to put them back in, sometimes by, you know, people who edit my pieces, who are either my colleagues or my husband. And, and I try to fight, but, you know, translators fight teeth and nail, and they tell me to put it back in. So, I mean, I would say that take poetic license because there is absolutely no need for you to recreate the Chinese structure of a sentence. I agree completely. And I think that um, it's crazy to do that because it becomes just a pedantic exercise. It becomes mm. this, and, and it doesn't actually allow the prose to breathe and, and take on its own, mm. it, the qualities of literature in English. So if a rat runs over someone's foot it just runs over your foot yeah. it doesn't run over the top of your foot one of the things about a lot of contemporary chinese writers what is that they're the too it's just it, they run over your foot there's no such yeah. thing it's just stupid it's just the other thing is it's at the foot of at the foot of your bed right. couldn't you do that it's at the foot of the bed yeah trongle is trongle just seems so nice but yeah. well, isn't shang there just meaning over on? yeah yeah so it it's just also, over your bed uh, over, your over foot. the foot but it could also be like ta no, it just it just right, ran over right. The that's foot. another example yeah. as well as Chuang Wei. 
Yeah, a, a chuang wei is, 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 is it's just and, for the bed. Yeah, I sort of wrote mm. it as sort of a treatise against over-translation, mm. you know. So if you look at these words in Chinese and you see shangmian, the novice translator might go ahead and say, okay, that means over the top. You see chuang wei, you think, oh, well, okay, I have to put it at the end of the bed. So I sort of wrote that translator's note to say, if you're doing this in your translation, you're not doing it right. I agree, and I think that... Um, um, I mean, maybe it's because I'm also, you know, I'm a writer. I've I've written six novels and right. I write a lot of other things. Um, I just have the confidence to just go. Um, there's no way that I'm going to put in this shangmian because even in Chinese it doesn't even sound right. Right. It's just too wordy. But and, there's so yeah. much you know verbosity going oh, on. Verbosity in and repetition. And when, yeah. to get back to one of Jeremy's questions about you know is it just that the literature that's not getting translated is crap or is it a, a serious imbalance of trade that reflects something? I mean it's right. a little of both. But one of the problems is that Chinese literature does tend to be written, and this is very interesting. I've always noticed this, written very fast. Chinese writers very often don't go through the processes that are very normal to writers, and I'm speaking as a professional writer, um, in, um, say, the US or UK or, or Australia, yes, but, where we right. revise yeah. and revise and revise. But, and you know, the thing they, is, I... They, I, I, I know these writers, yeah. right? I know Ai Yi, I know Ren Xiaowen, I know Lu Nei, who's published in our mm. most recent issue, the summer issue. And when I speak to them, they're passionate. You know, they, they say, you know, I love Carver, I want to write like Carver, but, uh, and I want to revise, re-edit, get editors and editing, uh, publishing houses to edit. But often the editors are not doing their jobs, they're lowly paid labor, yeah. you know, they're they hadn't even graduate from university. There's not a proper culture Right, so they're like, yes. you know, what do I do about this? My editor gets paid 2,000 words and you can't spell broom in the Chinese original. be like, you know, the wrong character. And so, you know, I'm not going to give them my, my, my uh, novel and, and let them edit the hell out of it. And then you meet writers who are like, I want to be like Carver, but writers don't make any money. So I went off and set up a tea business for five years with my husband, which is the case with the writer. But I that's a good idea. Right, you know, that is a very good idea. And I mean, T.S. Eliot didn't he work in a bank? Right, but they don't—they don't, they don't have the tra- great shit, right? no, they don't have the tradition. It is great, but they don't have the tradition of an artistic milieu where they can survive. You know, people but, going around saying you're a writer—that's fantastic. You know, or you've written two short stories that are published in the Paris Review. You know, that's great. They don't have that sense of worth. But you know? we don't have so, a great. I mean, to, to you know, to be quite frank, you know, in the world outside, we don't have a whole lot of people running up to us and and patting us on the head a lot either and so you have a lot of groupies Linda <laughs> do I <laughs> yeah you have some groupies <laughs> many. the many. odd groupie <laughs> um, but basically you know we do have to we it's just a sense of professionalism and I suppose self-respect right. and also discipline um, where you just go right um, and we can't always rely on our editors to pick up all of our problems either we we have a a very, I mean, I'm very lucky. I work with some very good publishers, but really, it is a matter of your, you know, going. I am going to work this over, work it over, work it over, work it over. And the Chinese, a lot of Chinese writers are far too eager to publish before they have yeah. sat on it and worked it over themselves. So, you know, you don't hear a lot about Chinese writers these days um, taking four years to write a novel. No. Do you know what I mean? And so I think one of the problems that as a translator you face is that you're looking at stuff that feels like a first draft. Because it is. Yeah, because it is. is. And so what you want to do is you want to present it as 
Carver. <laughs> right, but, but it's not Carver. But I don't. I, when I'm speaking and, to foreign yeah. publishing houses, one of the you know why is there twelve books published of, you know every year in America that's translation from Chinese? I would say that the you know those editors, I would say to them, if you want to put out more Chinese literature, you are faced with more first drafts and bad translators because there are so few of us working. So you're faced with, you, you know, you commission a reader's report, you commission a translation, a sample from a novel. Not only is it a first draft of something, it's also a bad translator who you've commissioned. You know, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, you know, so as an industry, people must recognize that Chinese literature is sort of in an infantile stage, but we need to get more of it out there. Yeah, well, I think so. that um, it's also a selection of texts. And uh, when you look at something, I mean, you recently did a, a translation of Shans- of a Shantongwen diary uh, yeah. entry, and it was so beautiful and so moving. And you think, okay, you. there's a whole lot of young writers, there's a whole lot of new writers in China mm. who are putting out their first drafts. Now, do we really, does the world, this is just an interesting question to throw out, does the world benefit more from no, from getting a lot of first drafts from a lot of new and contemporary writers who will then be forgotten and will never make a huge impact because they haven't really worked them up to the point where they're really good literature? Or should we go back and really dig into the great writing that has been done? Well, that's so contentious, isn't it? Because it that is. Really dead. You know, this guy who yeah. I translated... But he's beautiful. Shakespeare's uh, dead. I yeah, mean, you, know. you know, I translated an entire collection of his letters for mm. Yilin Chumansha in China, and it's not published yet. But I spent two years on that. And, you know, I... Well but, done. Yeah, but, you know, I... I and, you know, Brendan O'Kane wrote something about Tian Zhong Shu is more deserving of the Nobel Prize. Chen, Chen oh, Zhu, yes. Right? Well, Yang Jiang, I mean, his Chen Zhong right? Zhu's wife. I'm just doing brilliant. that to piss off Brendan. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, yeah, so I mean, and Chen Zhong Shu, you know, he, he wrote a great novel and he's dead. And they all were sort of really active during You're the Republican era. LA Review Books uh, on Fortress right. Besieged. And there, were, there was a series of them. Brendan's yeah. was one of them. Julia Lovell picked uh, Jani to the West. Oh, Brandon yes. picked Fortress Besieged. Fortress these are Besieged. these are works that they say should have should have won the Nobel in a just universe would have run yeah. won a Nobel Prize and instead Penguin, of Moyen right. or and Paul French right Paul French wrote one about uh, Lao Xia. Right. Yes, so, so, so Lao Xia, right, uh, Shen Wen, who I've translated, you know, so all of this, you know, if you get into that debate, it becomes, are we going to ignore all Chinese literature that have been published since 1949 because of, you know, the communist era, the diseased language era, and the Sun Canyon Review? You know, do we, do we want to ignore that or do we want to, I mean, I would love to dig into Shen Wen and everyone would love, and I would love to have my letters published everywhere, you know, but the thing is, and he never wrote fiction after 1949, so the letters are really important. But I mean, okay, this actually gets into another issue, and that is what are the motivations for translating and the motivations for reading and publishing? And so one of the things, I mean, this is the real, this is a real contradiction and a problem, and I don't think there's an answer to it, but on the one hand, as a reader, I just want to read the good stuff, right? You know, I don't care. Uh, you know, if I'm if I'm not engaged with a particular country, I just want to read what's wonderful coming out of there. I don't really want to read because it's going to teach me about, Norway. Do you know what I mean? So there's a lot of people who like, yeah, whatever. But then there's going to be people who want to read to understand contemporary China. They want to read the contemporary writers because they want to understand what is going on now. How is China changing? What is the what is the mentality of the young people, etc. So there is that. But I don't think I don't think it has mm. to be a either or situation. No, it doesn't. But I think that's that's where perhaps as translators um, we we need to 
be as picky as possible yeah. um, and to try to find the text that, uh, you know, some old, some new, <laughs> right. um, that They're really, that are good. Yeah. And, and then you get Chinese literature getting a better reputation yes, abroad. Yes, uh, I completely agree. One of the things about bad translators that I've said is if you don't know anything about the scene and you pick someone who has then been commissioned to do something that's fantastic in Chinese literature, that person could ruin that text. Absolutely. A bad translator. A bad translator. Oh, absolutely. So it's a good translator picking a good text. Uh, let's speak about the motivations of translators. Um, I mean, Linda, you are both a, a person who writes original uh, fiction and non-fiction and translates. Alice, I don't know how much uh, you do a literary work you do aside from translation, but you have written oh. original journalism for Dunway and yeah. for The no, Guardian. No, we, we, the um, Pathlight editors so all like, write. But, but for most translators, are they just kind of people who kind of want to be writers but don't have the talent or are too scared? <laughs> or why do, why do you translate, well, Linda, why do you do literary translation Linda has the, the experience, and I'll explain the novice point of view. <laughs> well, from the standpoint of a writer, I think it's, um, you know, a writer who knows another language. It's uh, an incredibly close reading of another writer's work. And this isn't an original thought. Other writers who do translation have also written about this. You admire somebody. I mean, Murakami loves Carver and Fitzgerald and and uh, all of these other American writers, and particularly really, really likes these American writers. And Murakami, who could just write his own novels very, very happily, he engages very deeply with translation because it, as, as all of us feel when you're engaging with a text you love, is it lets you, it, you know, you have to get into that text, you have to really decode it, you have to look at every single word, you have to see the placement of the words, you have to think about how the writer conceived of, um, of just even how they how they created the voice of the characters and it's so satisfying it's like a master class you know it really is for a writer it's like doing a master class if you're doing a translation of someone you love it's also um uh i find it's it 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 it's it's refreshing it takes your brain and it's like a puzzle um i love doing subtitles of chinese films it's one of my favorite things i adore doing it and i don't know how to describe it except to say, well, to quote another translator who quote who translates um, from French and Spanish and Italian, I think he does, um, and he called it 3D Scrabble for the brain. And I really think that that describes the sheer, I don't know, intellectual excitement or pleasure so, I mean, as a writing. writer. It's a word game. If you're going to answer my question, then you, I mean, you're saying translation is a different act of creation. It is writing. a different, it's a different act. thing. It's and not yet, that translators are people who are too scared to write. It's that they are engaging with something that is. I love your encapsulation. <laughs> it's a different act. A different it is. Type a, of it's act. a different type of act, but it's also incredibly creative and it is very creative. satisfying. Does it inform your writing? I think, yes, I think it does to some extent because um, I always think that reading and translating are two things that every time I translate something that I really love and every time I read something I really love, I feel like I've taken a master class. I mean, at the moment I'm on this complete just accidental uh, Nigerian kick. I started out with Chinua Achebe and now I'm on Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie yeah. and I, I'm... I read her in such awe 
and it's that kind of close reading. I think, oh my God, wouldn't it be wonderful to translate her into something? (laughs) Because then you'd really, really work out what she does. I think you must... You know, you must love translation more than so many of my paper public cadres. (laughs) You know, like everyone, like, you know, you translate some Chinese literature text and you think, or literature, and you think, my goodness, I can do so much better. Yes, but I turn down a lot of things. I don't... Yeah, we're also very, you know, in the front, in in the beginning of our careers. Well, I didn't turn down a lot in the beginning of my career either. And I think, you know, you have to go through that. But I do now, um, you know, if something doesn't appeal to me, if somebody's got too many shangmians, you know, and too many this and that, then I just go, well, But then you have, like, all these mythological figures in Chinese literature, like Wang Xiaobo, Wang Shuo. And then, you know, people are like, oh, I would love to translate Wang Xiaobo, Wang Shuo. And I have a secret belief that even if Brendan translated Wang Xiaobo, he'd still be like, I can write better than this. Do you see what I mean? So I think that, not that Brendan wants to write, but, you know, he's one of the few people who I think Brendan don't. McCain, yeah, he doesn't want to be, he just wants to be a translator. A famous translator and, you know, a traitor to the Beijing Yeah, uh, Alice hater. He hates no. I types. I love you, Brendan. Um, yeah. So I mean, so one of the th- oh, I shouldn't have said that. But one of the things you know that I yeah, love yeah. <laughs> about the I know right. I, I love about the arrogance of translators is they often get together like of the paper public translators in Beijing and they'll say, I've just done this essay or I've done this uh, novel or I've done this poem. But hey, here's the poem I've just written. Do you want to see it? You know, and then people will be like, oh, you know, I translated this. Not thing. really. We rather see. This no, no, thing. no. We're all like, yes. When you know, when you are did we... your original thing. Yeah, you know, when are we going to start talking about writing a poem? So you are just too scared sh- to write yourselves. Yes. Okay. But you know, it's interesting. Let's move on. Another tack. Um, so I, I just like to sort of um, tell a tiny little story about. About, I guess it must have been six years ago, there was a profile of me in one of the Southern Weekly Group's newspapers, something to do with Dunway at the time. And um, it was translated into English by Roland Song of the, it used to be basically the best blog about China, Zona Europa or ESWN. And he, he at one point was an extremely prolific daily translator of huge volumes of interesting stuff from the Chinese internet. And he picked up this story and translated it into English. And I found the experience completely shocking for two reasons. One was that I realized that I was somebody who, like most people involved in the Chinese world uh, and its intersection with the outside world, was somebody who kind of tweaked and moderated my, the way I talked according to my audience. And to suddenly have the things I'd said to the Chinese journalist, which he recorded mostly faithfully, which is perhaps Good. unusual, yeah. have those things translated into English, I suddenly I didn't quite like the way they looked in English. I've Do you had know the what same I mean? Have you experience. had this experience? And I mean, yeah. as a translator, what is your responsibility? This is interesting. I would point to um, there's a great translator's note by my colleague Eric Abrahamson on Granta. Actually, this is a big celebration dance because Ai, the Chinese writer has appeared in Granta travel issue and for the online edition this is the first Chinese writer to appear as far as I know and the travel issue Eric uh, wrote a translator's note and the first thing that he wrote this is on Granta you know the New Yorker of Britain the biggest cheese of literary (laughs) magazines first thing he said is when I got the Ayi story sent to my inbox my first impulse was Ayi is a racist basically you know because what Ayi does is he equates white and black people to rural folk in China and the American equivalent would be black and white people. In China, it would be rural folk. And in, in, and his point was, how do we reconcile these someone going into our 
uh, into a culture they don't know about, into a culture that's American, and then sort of flummoxing, you know, sort of making their own references that have no no. You mean on the as original. a Chinese writer, he was talking right. about race in America, right. kind of like a bull in a china shop. Yes, but this is in literature, you know, mm-hmm. so you have to respect it, you have to be faithful, and what do you do when you, when you have that sort of very awkward race and also transference of culture, and also, you know, what you were saying about when you are translated for an English language audience, your remarks to a Chinese journalist suddenly become extremely out of context and kind of severely crippled in a way. Is that, you know, you know what I mean? Like the audiences are so different. Yeah. So, I mean, that is an essential problem of translation. Yes. Yes. You know, and that's and that's a really straight. That's a really interesting one, because it's just it's a very it's a it's a it's an inapt metaphor that IE was using. Um, And so it's inapt already in Chinese, but he hasn't been called on it. Um, right. You know, because um, it was just accepted. And yet when you translate it into English, it stands out, as we would say but in Australia, it, like dog's balls. Right. But isn't it interesting that something that Jeremy could say to a Chinese journalist that is actually absolutely mm. normative in a Mandarin-speaking, China-based media thing, then it's translated by Roland Song into English, it now sounds like yes. completely like in I, and I understand you know, that because I've, I've had the same experience but what it is it's actually it's it's that we when you what some people who don't speak several languages don't understand is that when you're speaking another language you're not translating you're not translating into it you're thinking in that language you know, you are, you, when you... <laughs> Sometimes it's scary what you think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you are thinking differently yeah. because language has so much culture embedded in it that when you use it well, you are actually uh, engaging with that culture on a deep level that, um, that, that means the way you're thinking is slightly different. And so translated, it's quite weird. I had a very interesting experience when I wrote an opera, which um, has only gotten, it's only been produced in part, but hopefully will one day be produced. Uh, the composer was uh, Zhu Shaoyu. This is your Pan Jinlian yes, opera. Yes, this is my Pan Jinlian yeah. opera called Qingyuan. Pan Jinlian, the original Chinese... Um, um, the the, the goth, bad woman. Bad woman. Yes, the bad, bad the woman. The bad, bad woman. The bad woman of China. Um, and this opera, which is called Qingyuan, because the only thing the Ministry of Culture demanded as a change was that we couldn't call it Pan Jinlian, so we called it Qingyuan, Passion. Anyway, the, the opera was bilingual. Um, it is bilingual. And when I was writing the parts in Chinese, I was thinking in Chinese. And when I was writing the parts in English, I was thinking in English. But we also had to have translations of all of the opera so that people from different cultures who would be singing it, so Australians who didn't um, speak Chinese and Chinese who didn't speak English, could... Um, understand what the rest of it was about and I found I couldn't translate my own words what I wrote in Chinese came out really strange in English because I wasn't thinking that way it's just like when you were speaking to the journalist you were thinking in a particular way Mm. I guess it poses an interesting question of um, can you know does translation always reach its end you know does it always does it always do what it purports purports Mm. to do purports Often it um, doesn't. I no. would like to kind of start wrapping this up now because we're, we're going to run long um, with a final question before we get on to recommendations. Um, the final question is what are your, uh, Alice and Linda, what are your favourite translations? Possibly Story of the Stone 
by um, David Hawkes and uh, John, John Minford. Yeah. Uh, and that's a translation of the book that's often known as Dream of the Red Chamber. Um, and it is so beautiful. It is magnificent. It is a tour de force. I would say that's probably my favorite. Okay. Yeah, so this guy called, there's this guy called Lucas Klein who just won this huge translation award in the U.S. for his translation of the poet Xi Chuan. And it's published by New Directions, which is very reputable and great. Edited by Jeffrey Yang, who's also a writer and an uh, editor. And the collection is called Notes uh, on the Mosquito. Xi Chuan, uh, as in like Dongxi the Xi, and Chuan like the rivers. Um, it's sort of a collection of, you know, this guy, Xi Chuan, has been around for a long time. He's one of the best poets in China. And he is, you know, very, very well-versed in sort of every single Western counterpart to, you know, Laozi and Mengzi that you can imagine, but also Laozi and Mengzi. And Lucas, as a translator, he, um, I think he did his, uh, he did his PhD at Yale. He's a Sinoglot, you know, and he's also a really, really esteemed member of our group. Well, that brings us, I mean, we've sort of been, you've been recommending these things, but we, we usually end the show off with recommendations for, mm. you know, a book, a film, a tweet, a Twitter account, uh, anything you like, usually connect with China. Um, Alice, what do you got for us? I'm just going to go out on the limb and recommend people who are listening but are too afraid to read Chinese literature in the original just to go for it, because the longer you stall it, the worse it gets because you get older and you get older you get dumber you get less you know starry-eyed you'll never pro- you know like i love ancient texts everyone does story of the stone in translation and the original but there are a lot of people asking me about contemporary chinese lit and it's so easy to read you know ai who we've been talking about ren xiaowen who i've translated for pathlight who um whose first story that I wanted to translate so, wasn't picked I, up, you, was picked up by someone else. I'm actually reckoning... You're actually trying to talk reckon, yourself out of a job. No, no, no. I'm, like, I'm, don't read the translation I'm the sort original. of saying, like, everyone who I meet these days want to know what's good in Chinese lit, and my recommendation is go find out. Go read. 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 Essentially. Yeah. Go read. Read. Linda? Um, yes, read is always a very good, trans- uh, always a good uh, recommendation, but... Um, I am going to say that if you have a chance to see, and this is just, I'm recommending this because I think it has been overlooked uh, quite a lot, but if you have a chance to see the movie Hajab's Gift, which I translated, it's a movie made in Inner Mongolia by Inner Mongolian uh, filmmakers. It's, I think it's a real treat. I think it's very special. Um, And um, I love it. And I believe that it might get some screenings soon in Beijing. And it's, it's going to, France, uh, it's been in Germany, so it's been around, um, and hopefully it'll go around a little bit more. So Hajab's gift. Fantastic. I am going to take the moderator's privilege and recommend uh, my wife. Um, not <laughs> that you should marry her, because it's too late for that. <laughs> but she and her band, the Wu Force, have a gig in January in New York City. So if you're in New York City on January, uh, early January, uh, they'll be playing, and I think it's called the Global Fest, uh, kind of festival of folk music and music from all over the world. And in fact, we brought her into the studio today to do a little impromptu uh, rendering of Han Ren Do which is an old Beijing cha chua, like a, um, Beijing folk music, I guess. Um, and this is one of the songs that she's 
working with her band Woodforce, which is also Abigail Washburn uh, and Kai Welch, um, and they're kind of mixing up southern U.S. music and Americana, American folk music with Chinese folk elements, and we're going to play out with that song. But before we do that, I also want to recommend, since we're going to be so cozy here... Cozy um, incestuous. Yes, cozy circle incestuous. Circle jack. Is, yes, is, exactly. Yeah, accused of I mean, circle jack. But since you're do, ladies, I don't know, you don't... Does that work? No, it now? doesn't quite work, but it's, it's okay. The metaphor doesn't quite no, work. No, anyway. it doesn't quite work. It doesn't translate, it doesn't, Jeremy. It doesn't translate. Um, but Jeremy and uh, my ex-husband, Jeremy Barme, have recently co-edited a book... Oh, Linda. Yes, called <laughs> Civilizing China. And uh, it's the China Yearbook uh, 2013, which is just about to be launched in Australia, but will be available online. and Next week? Next week, and is highly recommended. It has a lot of material. It takes what has been happening the la- in the last year in China in every field and gives you a quite unique take on it. So I'd like to recommend that as well. How's that for a little cozy Thank you, Linda. I feel mm-hmm. circle jerk. Um, <laughs> or whatever the appropriate metaphor is. <laughs> so, on that note, I'm blushing. Um, sorry about the self-promoting translators and circle jerk. Oh. 